Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this series, we've been making our way through the book of Exodus. We saw Moses defeat Pharaoh and free the people from their Egyptian overlords. No longer does Pharaoh tell the people what to do and when to do it. No longer are the people bound by the laws, customs and rituals of Egypt. The community must now develop their own laws, customs and rituals to manage mimetic rivalry and avoid future mimetic crises. In more recent episodes, we have traced Israel's development of laws and customs, the priesthood and a sanctuary to house the primitive sacred. As the Lord repeatedly warns the people of Israel, if they fail to adhere to his laws and statutes, a mimetic crisis may ensue. Today we're going to consider the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, but I want to approach this story from a different angle. In this narrative, we see various clues of a mimetic crisis which involves Moses. As we shall see, Moses' role of pacifying the Lord's wrath in this passage mirrors that of a scapegoat who brings peace and order to the community following their execution. So we have some clues here that Moses may have been executed as a communal scapegoat in this narrative and the people experience a quenching of the Lord's wrath when that happens. Now, many among you will say, but Moses didn't die in the golden calf narrative. Yes, in the form of the narrative which we have in our Bibles, Moses survives this ordeal and goes on to lead the Israelites to the edge of the promised land. But we must remember that these stories are edited and stitched together from different traditions to form one cohesive narrative. Remember also that the violence tends to drop out of these stories as they evolve. In this episode, we shall follow the trail of breadcrumbs to discover an ancient version of Genesis chapter 32, which details the communal lynching and execution of Moses. Let's pick up the story now from chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So Aaron said to the people, Take off the rings of gold that are on your ears, your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Then they have made for themselves a golden calf, 
and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. The people grow weary, waiting for Moses to return to them. Perhaps they believe he has been slain in the presence of the Lord, or perhaps they seize their chance to expel Moses from their community and replace him as a leader. In any sense, Moses is dead to the people of Israel. This development is problematic for the community because Moses represented the people's access to the Lord. He was the only way they could control and communicate with the primitive sacred. Only Moses could ascend Mount Sinai to converse with God. And for this reason, the people must find another way to relate to the Lord. To this end, the community gather around Aaron. As scholars have noted, the term is used here, also is used elsewhere in the Pentateuch to describe a hostile crowd gathering against an enemy. With Moses gone, the people look for a scapegoat leader to persecute and they select their priest, Aaron. To survive, Aaron must give the people what they desire, material gods, gods they can see, just like all the other nations around them. You see, the people have FOMO, that is fear of missing out. They look around and notice that all the other peoples worship statues of their gods. These foreign nations carry their gods with them into battle. Having seen this, the Israelites desire a tangible, visible God like all the other nations. Aaron manages to survive the mob by playing along and constructing a metal statue of a cow. But who or what does this metal cow represent? Some scholars claim it represents the Lord, while others argue that the calf represents a new rival deity. Approaching this passage from a mimetic perspective casts new light on the identity of this metal cow. Remember that the Lord, the God of mimetic rivalry, inspired Moses to leave his comfortable life in Midian to engage in a fierce rivalry with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Although Moses had a comfortable life in Midian, the Lord prompts him to seek a new identity as Israel's saviour, who will lead them out of slavery and into the land of Canaan. Notice that in this passage, Moses is identified as the one who brought the people up out of the land of Egypt. Yet Aaron fabricates a metal calf and identifies the image as the gods of Israel who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what's going on here? The metal calf represents Moses. With Moses dwelling on the mountain for so long, the people begin to suspect that he is dead. According to mimetic theory, communities attribute peace and order experienced at the death of their scapegoat victims to the scapegoats themselves. The strange catharsis achieved through their death suggests that the scapegoat was a god who now reaches beyond death to grant blessing to the community. In our passage, the Israelite community deify Moses. 
in his death, depicting him in the form of a metal calf. Just as Moses in his lifetime led the Israelites into battle, so now the metal calf as his representative image will go before the Israelites. The Israelites have fabricated a metal calf to summon and house the warrior spirit of their deceased scapegoat leader, Moses. Presenting his handiwork to the people, Aaron proclaims, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in a sense, Aaron's words are true. The same mimetic desire for identity which brought them up out of the land of Egypt has now prompted Israel to imitate their Canaanite rivals. This whole episode highlights the importance of the Lord's prohibition against imitating Canaanite worship practices. Like the Canaanites, the Israelite community sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Scholars have had much to say about this phrase. On the whole, most scholars translate the Hebrew term tsa'ak in this verse as joyful dancing. I'll be the first to admit that tsa'ak, from which the patriarch's name Isaac comes, is a versatile and difficult verb to interpret. That said, the use of this verb in our passage seems to mirror Miriam's celebration of the Lord as a man of war following the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt in Exodus chapter 15. In other words, their people are again celebrating their God, yet this time they do not celebrate the warrior God of mimetic rivalry, but a false image, a copy of the Canaanite gods. Just as the Canaanites have deified and lifted up and worshipped their own ancestors who fought great feats of rivalry for them, now the Israelites lift up Moses and represent him in the shape of a cow. In Canaan, the ox and bull were commonly associated with war and warlords. By depicting Moses as a calf or an ox, the Israelites imitate their Canaanite neighbours as they mould Moses, their warrior god, into an earthly image. In so doing, the community begin to lose all distinction with their Canaanite rivals, along with any sense of distinct identity. This development transforms Israel's rivalry with the Canaanites into a free-for-all, everyone against everyone else, as a lack of distinction within the land leads to a mimetic crisis. A lack of order and structure, characteristic of a mimetic crisis, is depicted as the Israelites break through. This verb in Hebrew, parua, describes a wanton disregard for order and communal norms that threatens to break down the social structure. As Aaron and the people of Israel break through, they destroy the normal social structures and order that might have otherwise prevented a mimetic crisis. Reading on now from verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply their offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came down near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burnt it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses manages to calm the wrath of the primitive sacred by bringing to remembrance the Lord's promise of the land to Israel's patriarchs. Having diffused the anger of the primitive sacred, Moses descends the mountain with two stone tablets bearing the Lord's laws and commandments only to destroy them. What do we see here? I mentioned earlier that to the Israelite community, Moses is dead. Whether he has left the community and ascended God's sacred mountain and died up there, or whether Israel have expelled him from their midst into the sacred presence of the Lord, or whether the community have gathered around and actively scapegoated him, stoning him to death, as far as they are concerned, Moses, their scapegoat leader, is dead. Of course, the narrative conceals this act of communal violence and depicts Moses ascending the Lord's presence, the sacred, primitive space. Nevertheless, following his death, Moses blesses Israel. This is the common formula we see with scapegoating. The community band together to execute their communal scapegoat. And once they have done that, once they have vented all their rivalry upon this individual, they experience a renewed sense of peace and order. This is the experience of Israel with Moses gone from their midst. The narrative explains this experience by depicting Moses up on the mountain of the Lord in the primitive sacred blessing the people of Israel and renewing their focus upon the Canaanite conquest. You see, if rivalry is not vented outwardly, the community will vent their rivalry upon a communal scapegoat. In this way, the Canaanites provide an outlet for the Israelite community to vent their mimetic rivalries so that they can maintain peace and order among themselves. With order once again restored, the people have a vision of the resurrected Moses smashing tablets of stone as he descends the mountain. 
Now, I mentioned earlier that this act of the Lord writing his commandments on two tablets of stone represents a decisive factor of law and order. Because stoning was the most common form of communal execution, stone represents the image of mimetic violence. When the Lord writes upon the tablets, he transforms this primitive symbol of mimetic violence into a new symbol of law and order. Now in response to the community's refusal to follow the law's commands and statutes, Moses smashes these tablets of stone. As the law give a scapegoat, Moses smashes these tablets. The people realize the error of their ways. Animated by a spirit of mimetic rivalry, the people have broken free from the Lord's commands and statutes, which ultimately has led them to kill and scapegoat their leader, Moses. Having heard the commotion, Joshua supposes that the people are engaging in warfare with another tribe. Moses corrects Joshua, It is not the sound of the victory cry, nor the cry of defeat, but I hear the sound of anoth. Whatever this Hebrew word anoth means, it differs from the cry of victory over an enemy people. The term is often translated as singing, and is the same word used to describe Miriam's celebration of the Lord's victory back in chapter 15. The use of this word anoth, coupled with the people's breaking free, suggests the community are violently reenacting the bloodshed of the Exodus crisis. Yet this time, the community lynch their communal scapegoat Moses rather than directing their violence outwards towards Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Although their cries sound very much like warfare, it is neither the cry of victory nor defeat as the community destroys its own communal scapegoat. Notice Moses' response exactly mirrors that of the Lord. Moses burns with anger just as the Lord entreats Moses to let him alone, that his anger may burn hot against the community to consume them. You see, while the deified Moses has the ability to bless, he also has the ability to inflict a curse upon the community in the form of a mimetic crisis. Okay, so I've said a lot here, some things which sound quite blasphemous, and I just want to summarize what we've seen and reframe it. So the people of Israel assume that Moses is dead on the mountain. This is the mountain that burns with fire and smoke and there's cloud and the people are too scared even to hear the Lord's voice being uttered from this mountain. This is a dangerous place. This is the very epicenter of the primitive sacred. So they don't know, they expect, they assume logically that Moses is dead. Now remember that the primitive sacred represents mimetic violence and mimetic violence in the community. It's the personification of that violence we perpetrate against each other. And in an earlier version of the narrative, we might actually see this sacred violence directed towards Moses as the community may have expelled or executed Moses as a scapegoat. 
but we just don't know that. We are speculating. But what happens next seems to fit that pattern of the communal scapegoat who was later deified by the community which executed them. On the mountain, Moses pacifies the primitive sacred, in this passage described as the Lord's hot anger, which threatens to destroy the entire community. In other words, the community is undergoing a mimetic crisis, which Moses is able to diffuse by restoring peace and order to the community. Ordinarily, a scapegoat achieves this result through their death as the community vent their mimetic rivalries. This observation may suggest that an earlier version of Exodus 32 may have originally included Moses' execution. Further support for this reading is found in the Israelites' actions following Moses' departure. When the community experienced peace and order following his death, they supposed that Moses is a God who reaches beyond the realm of the dead to bless them. The community then must construct a metallic calf to represent Moses in the hope that he will continue to lead the Israelites into battle even after his death. Within this crisis, the metallic calf is destroyed and burnt with fire. We are told that Moses ground it to powder, scattered the metal shavings in the water, and makes the people drink from it. In other words, the community's cow god could not withstand the violence of the mimetic crisis. Now remember, the metallic calf represents Moses. So here in this passage, we have another clue. Here's a graphic depiction of Moses' death without the blood and guts. So this pantomime of Moses grinding the cow, his own image to powder, may actually be the storyteller's way of graphically depicting Moses' death without the communal violence of a scapegoat lynching. So here we see more evidence that the original narrative may have included Moses's communal lynching and that this narrative has evolved over time to remove that violent scapegoating element. As we read on, we see Moses fulfill the role of the primitive sacred of mimetic rivalry as he inspires the community to band together against another common scapegoat. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know that the people, they are set on evil. They said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have a gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. 
And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned such a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that I have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So the Lord struck the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. The deified Moses, the community's new symbol of mimetic rivalry, inspires the people to blame Aaron for the mimetic crisis. Aaron swiftly sidesteps his allegations by placing the blame back on the people themselves. By these means, Aaron foils his own scapegoating, which allows the mimetic crisis to spiral out of control. The future of the community is now in jeopardy because the people have broken loose from the normal structures and mechanisms which protected it. The forsaking of the Lord's commands, coupled with the failed scapegoating of Aaron, allows the cycle of mimetic violence to flourish as a mimetic crisis ravages the community. In the midst of this crisis, the deified Moses inspires the tribe of Levi to kill 3,000 of their companions and neighbours. Through their violent slaughter, the tribe of Levi secure their role as guardians and stewards of the tabernacle. On the surface, this comment sounds quite strange. Why would the Levites' violent slaughter of their fellow Israelites qualify them for blessing and service in the tabernacle? Answer, because that's how the primitive sacred operates. The primitive sacred generates blessing through violence. We've seen already that the scapegoat mechanism generates the blessing of peace and order through the death of a communal scapegoat. As perpetrators of violence, the Levites are selected to serve in the presence of the primitive sacred. In this way, the Levites also become communal scapegoats who enter the primitive sacred on behalf of the community, much as Moses would ascend the mountain of the Lord in the place of the people of Israel. With the Levites' appointment, we see some structure return to the Israelite community. Thankfully, the Levites' violence vents enough mimetic rivalry to halt the crisis. This resolution is graphically depicted as Moses going up into the Lord's presence to make atonement for the people. Through his intervention, Moses returns order as the Lord agrees to send his angel once more to go before the people of Israel. 
In other words, the Lord will once again lead the people of Israel through the spirit of mimetic rivalry. Once again, this formless, unseen force of mimetic rivalry will lead the Israelites into battle and lead them to triumph over their enemies. But Israel must be on their guard because the primitive sacred is not tame. Although the Lord will send his angel of violence ahead of them, Israel will also be punished for any disobedience. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.